Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. If I'm rubbing my eye, it's not because I love him so much, although I do love you so much, Simon. It's because I got something in my eye. Worst timing, hey? All right, okay, good morning. Uh, happy, happy Advent, happy Advent. Uh, Scott and I were talking uh, a couple days ago of how that's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> and we'll see why uh, in this message, hopefully. You already know kind of what the Advent season's all about, and you can realize that like saying happy Advent is not really the right way to say it, but there's kind of no other way to say it. Um, so... Uh, as we enter into the Advent season, or have already entered into the Advent season, by popular demand, popular demand, today marks the return of a series that we started last year looking at cherished Christmas carols and the stories behind them. Um, I've got to say that being a youth pastor here at Lambrick, well, anywhere really, uh, comes with some liberty. Uh, to do things that other pastors wouldn't necessarily do um, or get away with, like getting the youth to build gingerbread houses on each other's faces. Uh, We did that this past week. Um, Yeah, you know, just good stuff. Uh, So I'll be honest, uh, with that, I I pleaded with Scott this week. I pleaded with him that, because he's speaking next week, I I was like, please, Scott, can you speak on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Please, just do it. It would be so funny. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. So then I pleaded with him, can you let me speak on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Because it would be so funny. And he's like, nope, nope, not going to do it. So obviously my youthly, youth pastor charm, I guess, didn't work. Uh, He said no. Um, And I realized that He's actually away this morning, so I totally could have done Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I totally could have. Um, So, uh, unfortunately, you know, I want to respect him. I don't want to get in any more trouble than I'm already in as a youth pastor. So, uh, this morning, the carol we're going to be talking about is Frosty the Snowman. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I actually wish that we were doing some sort of bright uh, Christmas carol, some happy uh, song, because the one we're actually going to talk about this morning, um, and the reason I picked it is, is it's a heavy one. It's actually a pretty heavy carol. Um, we cherish it. We sing along to it. The, the music behind it can be bright and happy, but the lyrics are actually pretty heavy, um, which I hope we can look at this morning together. So I, I will warn you, I'll preface my message with this carol may bring some stuff up that, uh, that you, might make you uncomfortable. Um, but I chose it because I am really convinced that especially this year, this season, this is a carol that we need to talk about and it has a message for us that we need to hear. So the carol that we're singing is not Frosty the Snowman. It is, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, which we just sung. Uh, but before we jump into the story and look at uh, the words, I just want to invite you, let's just pray for a moment and invite God into this conversation. Lord God, uh, this morning we come before you and we are asking for you to bless us with your word and truth. Uh, God, before I begin the message, I just pray for comfort in this room by your Holy Spirit, as some raw and painful things might be named today. Uh, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be like a blanket in this room, uh, a blanket of your presence. And God, help us hear your voice over all others, but especially know that you're not just speaking to us, you're actually present here in the room with us, comforting us and, and just 
loving on us and, and just being here with us. And so we give you, we offer you this time and this space as well as our hearts and our minds. And we say, speak, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, one of the things that I love about the, this Advent series that we're doing, and we did last year as well, is we get to go beyond the veil of our Christmas songs that we all love and cherish. We get to see the heart behind them that we don't necessarily get to see when we just sing them uh, with the radio playing them. Uh, and it's always good to be reminded that these songs weren't written in a vacuum, right? They didn't just come out and all of a sudden they're just a cherished Christmas song. There was a person or multiple people behind the song, uh, each with a name, a family, a relationship with God, experiences, especially experiences in life that shaped who they were and eventually the lyrics that they go on to write. Um, so It Came Upon a Midnight Clear is one of those carols that once you discover the story behind it, it becomes more than just a song that we sing. Sing. I'm convinced this morning that once we hear the story behind this carol, the carol is going to turn into a prayer for us, a prayer. So let me introduce you to the man behind the carol. His name was Edmund Hamilton Sears. Uh, he was the youngest boy of three, and he grew up in a far, on a farm in the early 1800s in Massachusetts. Uh, even as a child, he was drawn in, as a little kid, he was drawn in by the beauty of God's world. Uh, later in life, he admitted to a friend that one of his favorite pastimes to do as a child growing up on the farm was to observe the Berkshire, Berkshire Hills that he lived near and imagine that God's angels traveled between heaven and earth on their errands of love, ministering to the people, um, but that they would take a moment and rest on these hilltops. That's what he would imagine. He'd sit there for hours just thinking about that. Um, Sears' story could easily become one of a disillusioned child growing up and discovering the hard reality of life. Uh, he went on to leave the farm, go to school, and eventually he became a minister. Uh, however, by the time he wrote this carol that we sing in 1849, he was in a place of utter despair, utter despair. The heaviness of the world around him was crushing him. The nation was still recovering from the Mexican War. There was political division over slavery, people being abused and oppressed all around him. Closer to home, there was severe poverty and grief in his immediate community, the, the community he was ministering to. And to add to it all, personally, he struggled on and off with depression and an illness that actually prevented him from speaking to large crowds of people. So all of that that he carried with him as an adult compounded to the point that he truly struggled to reconcile his faith with Christ being the light of the world and reconciling that with the darkness that he saw all around him and personally experienced. So by Christmas time, 1849, he was having a difficult time lifting his spirit above the grief and frustration that was weighing down his soul. Not only that, but as a minister, he had utter difficulty looking for any kind of encouragement that he could pass on to his congregation during Christmas. So, he was preparing for the Christmas Eve service, um, and he was reading Luke chapter 2. 
And this song of the angels in Luke chapter 2 spoke to him profoundly in a new way. He had read it many times, but in this moment of grief and frustration, it truly spoke to him. And the verse says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. One of the things you need to know about Sears is that throughout his life and ministry, he was a man of conviction. He often uh, would preach uh, from the pulpit against slavery. He also preached in favor of women's rights. This was long before women uh, won the right to vote or were treated equally. Uh, Which paints the picture for us why Luke chapter 2 stood out to him and the heart behind this message of his carol. As much as he wanted his congregation to be comforted by the story of Christmas, he also wanted them to respond to it, respond to it, and serve others by feeding the hungry, by addressing the nation's social ills, and to think seriously about how they themselves reflect the spirit of Christ in their daily lives. And this is most evident in the original second stanza of the song that we didn't sing, um, but this actually was removed later, but it reads this. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. So within 10 years, the poem turned into a carol. And then eventually, in the early 20th century, it became well-known and was put in all the hymn books all over the place, and it became a beloved Christmas song. But what's probably, I think, the most interesting fact about this carol, and really adds to the heaviness of it, is that this song was sung in both world wars by the frontline soldiers. They would sing this as they'd go into battle together. It's said that no other song in existence at the time quite captured their own prayers for peace on earth. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old when the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold. The prince of peace, their king, and the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. So this carol is truly an Advent carol. Some Advent carols focus primarily on the past, but fail to capture the true heart of the season, which is looking forward to the day that Christ comes again. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She's an author. She says, Advent refuses to dwell in the past that never was. Advent is about the future. It isn't a season of remembering something that happened a long time ago. It is a season of preparation for the great coming day of the kingdom of God. And if I could add, she's brilliant, so I'm adding something, but she, you know, you can just take that quote as it is. Um, But I would add that it's also uh, about longing, about longing, not just preparing yourself, but longing for the great coming day of the kingdom of God. Part of preparing is having eager expectation, and that's where the carol that we sung this morning, Sears' Carol, names this longing cry for Jesus to return 
in power, in glory, and peace. And it also names the frustration here and now as we await the coming of tomorrow. Still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled. And still their heavenly music floats over all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing, and ever over its babble sounds, the blessed angels sing. So there are two Advent passages that kind of help us frame this. Uh, the first comes from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 26, which is a lament that was written during the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. And this is what it says, starting in verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I, will, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So I'll point out some connections to our carol from that passage in a second, but there's actually a second passage that I want to name today, and this comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, which reads, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For it is in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So these two passages and the carol as an Advent poem name three ways in which we long for tomorrow to come. The first is in pain. The second is in hope. And the third way we long for tomorrow is in song. So the first one is we long for tomorrow in pain. Chelsea and I, uh, has, since we've welcomed Lucas into the world uh, in September, um, there, we've had many sleepless nights, sleepless nights, um, which means I'm spending or Chelsea's spending a lot of time trying to comfort him in the middle of the night to get him to go back to sleep. Um, and one of my defaults when it comes to comforting my son is I say, you're okay, you're fine, stop crying, <laughs> let me go back to sleep. Um, you could say that the way that I comfort him is a floxy nasi nihil pillification. 
And yes, that is a word. <laughs> uh, Chelsea, being a music therapist, okay, she was quick to point out to me as I'm you know, holding him and, and trying to say, you're okay, go back to sleep. He's like, Aaron, he's not okay. Clearly, he's not okay. <laughs> he's upset, right? So say, it's going to be okay. Don't say, you're okay, because in that, you're just dismissing how he's feeling, right? And my, my wife, the thing you got to know about my wife is she's always right. She's always right. <laughs> so <laughs> I was reading uh, this Christian philosopher not too long ago who says, sometimes we do that. We be- belittle people's pain. You know, uh, you can think of maybe giving advice to someone who's really struggling. Just, just have faith. Or, you know, someone who's struggling with anxiety. And you're like, just suck it up, right? Like, we just belittle people's pain sometimes. Um, but also, sometimes we belittle our own pain. Uh, we belittle our own pain. We say, okay, so-and-so has it way worse than me, so I, I shouldn't be upset. I can't be upset. I need to be thankful. So in that sense, we belittle our own pain. Um, but here's the thing with that that this philosopher points out. Suffering, in a sense, is subjective and relative. Um, yes, other people suffer and sometimes suffer more than we do. But with Lucas, for example, when he's experiencing hunger pains in the middle of the night, It's the most pain he's ever known. It's the most pain he's ever known. So of course, he's gonna scream and he's gonna cry and he's gonna be upset. And same with us, and I want us to hear this. Every single person in this room who lives on this planet in this time, we all suffer. We all suffer. Your suffering may not in the end be as bad as your neighbor's suffering, but it's still suffering. It's possibly the most painful thing that you've ever experienced. And that's okay to recognize and to feel. God wants us to recognize it and feel it. The Lamentations passage that I read, it isn't there for us to compare our suffering with and say, oh, I guess my life's not as bad as the guy who wrote this. You know, his city was literally on fire. Um, so I should just suck it up and, and just move on. Well, no, God didn't put it in the Bible for us to just compare our suffering to. He put it in, our, in the Bible to show us that suffering is the common experience of every person who's ever lived, of all people. And in that pain that we experience, God desires to meet us. He desires to meet us in it. The whole first half of that chapter, I won't read it for you, but you could definitely go and read it after the service if you want. But the whole first of, the chap- of that chapter in Lamentations is the poet blaming God and getting mad at him for all of the pain in his life. But curiously, he ends the passage, the poem, with confidence. Confidence in God's faithfulness. Confidence in God's promises. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So both this passage and the carol we read start with pain. And that is Advent. As Rutledge puts it, Advent begins in the dark. Begins in the dark. Thankfully, though, it doesn't end in the dark. But pain is that constant reminder. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, he has a whole book on pain. Pain is that constant reminder that all is not right with the world 
or even ourselves. And when we acknowledge that, we're ready then to move into hope. So the second way that we groan or long for tomorrow is in hope. This is the hope that pain leads us to. Paul names it in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Some theologians, some commentators have read this passage and have noted that it seems like Paul is belittling our pain in this passage. It kind of comes across as, suck it up, have faith, put your hope in God, right? And so in a lot of ways, people will read this and they actually don't get much comfort from it. But looking at it closer, Paul is actually saying something quite profound, something that I think the writer of our carol, Sears, would have lived and experienced himself. And that is that pain and hope in our Christian life is intimately tied and bound together. In verse 23, Paul basically says, Those, though as Christians we've received so much from our faith in Christ already, we are still groaning inwardly for more. It's actually because we are filled with God's spirit as believers that it arouses, he, God, arouses in us a painful sense of lack. Lack in the world, but also lack in ourselves. And in that grows a longing for salvation and redemption in its fullness. I like how uh, one author puts it, one theologian. He says, what they, Christians, already have makes them hungry for more. And it is in this sense that pain and hope are combined. So in one sense, God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. God has redeemed and God has saved. But in another, we still wait for God to come and for God to redeem and for God to save. Whether it be his kingdom to establish everlasting peace at Christ's return, our own adoption into sonship and daughtership, or our transformed and resurrected bodies that await us in the next life, the Spirit awakens us to a sense that although we've been blessed by Christ, there's still more to come. For lo, the days are hastening on, by prophets seen of old, when the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold, when the new heaven and earth shall own the prince of peace their king, and the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. I went through a season before coming here, uh, before I got hired at Lambrick, about a year and a half, two years ago, where I nearly lost all hope in my life. Uh, a close friend of mine had passed away. Uh, COVID was uh, just a new reality we were trying to figure out to live within. And I was diagnosed with depression. And there was this moment I remember when I was chopping vegetables 
And I remember thinking about how without hope in the promises of God, my pain meant nothing. My pain was utterly meaningless. There was no promise that things would ever get better, no matter how many times my counselor or wife or mom or whoever told me that they would get better eventually. Without God, my suffering in that moment was pointless. It was like God in this season of my life allowed me to dip my toes into nihilism and sit in that place for a little bit. Later that evening that I was chopping the vegetables after I'd received this diagnosis and was struggling with it, I broke down. We were at a friend's place babysitting their little baby, and I couldn't help my wife babysit because I was breaking down. I wept, and I hate to admit it, I rarely cry, but I wailed. I've never cried like that in my life. I felt absolutely hopeless. And from that moment on, came a rediscovering in my life of hope. But not the worldly kind of hope where you believe that something might happen in the future. That's what I was struggling with was, do I just believe in this stuff because I want it to be true? And so that's a worldly hope, to think that something might happen in the future. We all exercise that kind of hope. Oh, it'd be nice if God's promises were real. But that's not the hope that I was rediscovering. I was rediscovering, or for the first time discovering, a real steadfast anchoring of the soul, a faith that leads to hope and allows us to live in the now, which wouldn't be the case if there were truly no promise for more to come. Romans chapter eight says, we were saved in Not saved by hope, which is sometimes how people read this passage, but saved by faith in God into hope. Pope Benedict, the 16th, the Pope, he comments on what Paul means by saying we are saved in hope. He says, it's only when the future is certain as a positive reality does it become possible to live in the present as well. Look now. For glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. So we long for tomorrow in pain, in hope. And lastly, we long for tomorrow in song. I think one of the most powerful aspects of the carol is its way of convicting and eliciting a response from those who follow Jesus. One of the defining factors of Sears' life and ministry was his heart for the disenfranchised, for the oppressed, for the hungry, and for the poor. And I can't help but wonder if it's because he himself knew what it was like to suffer, to be face-to-face with his own pain, Because he had bouts of depression. He struggled with a severe illness. And of course, he was trying to minister to a community that was severely experiencing poverty and racism and grief. I also can't help but wonder if because of his own heart being bruised by his life experiences, that it actually enabled him to have more compassion for others. Kenzie 
our children's pastor, was talking with me about this. She's brilliant, by the way. If you ever want to have a good conversation about pain and suffering, go speak to her. And she mentioned the passage in 2 Corinthians verses one, uh, or chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, that says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. In conversation with Kenzie, she pointed out to me that facing our own pain, coming up and being honest about our own pain, and meeting God in it, is what enables us to embrace others in their pain as well. So in a way, I think that Sears understood the groaning and longing for God's kingdom because he felt it himself. And out of that longing came this poem. And in it, Sears is begging the world, all Christians everywhere, to sing back the song of hope, the song of peace, the song of love, the song of joy, and the song of salvation, because he truly saw and experienced in himself the deep need for it. It wasn't just his preaching. He didn't just give this message to people up uh, from the pulpit. Sears challenged, and himself, challenged himself to get involved, for people to get involved, for us to join the song and not just hear it. And for this reason, many people didn't like Sears Carroll initially. It was actually a lot of Christians who themselves criticized Sears' poem, saying it was too moralistic, it was too humanist, it was too, too social justice-y. Because you have to understand, in the early 20th century, after Sears' time and when his carol became popular, the church had lost its social conscience. A historian by the name of Timothy Smith calls it the great reversal of the church, where evangelicalism went from being profoundly transformative of the culture it was a part of. One example of that is slavery being outlawed. It wasn't a secular, financial, political argument that challenged slavery. It was a theological argument that won the day. It was an argument from the love of God and how all people are made in his image that did away with slavery eventually. And that was because evangelicalism back in that day, during Sears' day, was profoundly involved in the social ills that were going on around them. But by the time the early 20th century came, evangelicalism hunkered down in small communities, scared to venture out into the big bad world with an agenda to reform. He calls it the great reversal. Then came along John Stott near the end of the 20th century. And he was a profoundly impactful voice to remind the church that the gospel is for the world. The gospel is for the world. He says this, The message of salvation implies a message of judgment upon every form of alienation, oppression, and discrimination. And we should not be afraid to denounce evil and injustice wherever they exist. When people receive Christ, they are born again 
into his kingdom and must seek not only to exhibit but also to spread its righteousness in midst of an unrighteous world. The salvation we claim should be transforming us in the totality of our personal and social responsibilities because faith without works is dead. So that's why I love the theme of singing Sears' carol, the theme in his carol. The song or the melody of Christ he talks about that the angels are singing, it's an invitation for us to join. And the more people who join in, then the call for peace and hope becomes larger and louder. And the hope in it is that eventually, as we all join in the song, that the beauty of this song, Christ's song, will capture the heart of the nations and start transforming the world here today as we wait for tomorrow. Living our faith is the way that we join in the song. As Scott says all the time, life with God for the world, for the world. See, here's the temptation as I start wrapping up especially during Advent, this is our temptation, is to sit here in the in-between stage of first Advent when Christ came and second Advent when Christ returns. We sit here in the in-between and we forget sometimes that there's work that needs to be done. Maybe it's part laziness. Maybe we aren't fully invested. Maybe we haven't come face-to-face with our own pain and allowed God to awaken us to a deeper compassion and hope that actually changes us. But when we step further into this gospel life and let the Spirit take hold of our lives and let Jesus be our King here and now, our acts of generosity, love, care, forgiveness, and joy become blessings to this world that's in desperate need of the song. So when we give and we're generous without strings attached, we show others that God's kingdom, although it's still coming, it's also here now. And God's kingdom is about belonging to Christ opposed to being owned by our stuff. So when we're generous, we're exercising that. We're showing the world that. When we invite someone in for a meal who maybe we don't normally consider to invite over, uh, we show others that in God's kingdom, we all eat at the same table. When we forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, we show others that God's kingdom is one where the undeserved become recipients of God's eternal kindness. And when we choose joy even in the midst of pain and we choose hope even in the midst of pain, we show others that our hearts and eyes are set on something better to come and that nothing we could go over or through will compare to what's in store for those who love and know the Lord. So friends, the song is being sung over us, over you, over me. And Christ invites us to sing along. So my question is, this Advent season, but also beyond it, will you, will I, will we sing the song that the angels are singing? Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world hath suffered long. Beneath the angel strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels 
sing. Let's pray. Lord, all glory and honor and praise to you, Jesus, our King. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we be a taste of the heavenly city that is to come so that others around us, those we care about, those we have yet to meet, the strangers in this world, may discover for themselves your true promises. Pain is real, God. There is no hiding it from you. There's no hiding it from ourselves. And you, our Lord, know, you know what it's like to experience pain firsthand. So comfort us, Jesus. Deepen our hope in you. And at the same time, deepen our compassion for others. Thank you for your song, Jesus. I ask for your spirit to help us sing it well until the day the world returns, the melody in full. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.